in about a month, it will be my 10th wedding anniversary. Which leads me to think about things like how often I forget to wear my wedding ring. Uh, one such occasion was this morning. I couldn't find it, and I thought, I, I'm going to open with that. I should probably have it on my finger. But I, I, did, I was thinking, why do we celebrate wedding anniversaries? Is it just to wipe the sweat off our brow and to say, we made it another year somehow? Maybe. But I do think it's a little bit more than that. It's a, it's a day in the year that we, we set aside to remember the vows and, and the promises that we spoke to one another to have and to hold from this day forward for richer, for poorer, to cling to thee and only thee until we both die. Something like that. But we remember that we entered into this covenant together. And we celebrate it. We recognize that this is a good relationship we have entered into. That we've kept our promises once more. And it's an indication of our desire to continue to keep those promises to one another. We're in Leviticus chapter 23 this morning. And the big picture of the chapter is actually really simple. It's that God is in control of his people's calendar. The chapter is filled with various feasts, festivals, times of the year where God's people are to set time aside to focus on God and to worship him. That's the big picture of the chapter, but what we're going to do today is just focus on one particular festival within the chapter. And it comes in the first three verses. It's the Sabbath. The Sabbath day. Because it is foundational for the rest of the chapter. The Sabbath is the first feast among God's people. And on it, there is a weekly reminder of the covenant that God's people have entered into with God himself. Each week, the Jews would come and remember that they were slaves in Egypt, but no longer. Because God had saved them. It was a reminder to them and a pledge of their own devotion to God in the future. And so as we focus on the Sabbath today, I've tried to summarize our main idea this morning. As God's people celebrate the new covenant by imitating God with rest one day in seven remembering God's work of redemption and gathering for worship. And you can see your exhortation follows suit there a little bit. Rest, remember, gather for worship. Our um, pattern this morning will deviate from our normal. We just typically you know, work through chapter and verse through a passage of Scripture. Uh, we're we're going to get the lay of the land a little bit more systematically this morning as we consider the Sabbath. And so you have all those references out to the side of the outline, and they will help you. Uh, you can get ahead of me and turn to some of them if you so desire. And with that, let's, let's pray, and we will begin our time together this morning. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to gather together to worship you. Pray that we would submit to your word and that you would change us by it. 
And what we know not teach us, what we have not give us, what we are not make us. Pray that Christ would be magnified in this time. Help us to encounter your presence as we listen to your word together. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So in Leviticus, when the Sabbath is introduced, the author assumes that we have some background knowledge, that we know, well, what the Sabbath is and and, and what it's about. And so we want to make sure that we have that background knowledge. And how we are going to obtain it is by transporting ourselves to the foot of Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 20. And the context there, remember, is that uh, the people of Israel were slaves and they have been drawn out of Egypt and into relationship with God. They've been made sons. They've been redeemed. And after traversing the wilderness, they, they now stand at the foot of the mountain of God. The mountain is cloaked in darkness consumed with the fire of God's presence. There is lightning and thunder and the sounds of trumpets and the ground is shaking and the people are shaking along with it and God speaks. We pick up on the fourth of the ten words in Exodus chapter 20 verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. You were to labor six days and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You must not do any work. You, your son or your daughter, your male or your female slave, your livestock or the foreigner who is within your gates. For the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and everything in them in six days. Then he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, The Lord blessed the Sabbath day and declared it holy. So in these three verses, we get the the what of the Sabbath, the the how of keeping the Sabbath, and then the why. And the what is is pretty straightforward. Keep the Sabbath. And we go, well, how do we do that? And that's pretty straightforward too. You, You rest. You don't work. And so during the ordinary course of a week in an agrarian society, it was expected you, you go out, you, you plow the fields, you plant seeds, you, you grow things, you, you tend to the animals. And what God says to his people is what you're not going to do on the seventh day, on the Sabbath day, the last day of the week, it's a special day. And what makes it special is that you are not going to work. You're going to rest. So that means everyone So fathers don't work on the Sabbath day. Mothers don't work on the Sabbath day. Slaves don't work on the Sabbath day. Sons and daughters don't work on the Sabbath day. Even livestock, animals, are not to do work on the Sabbath day. Which immediately brings the question, right? But what, what qualified as work in ancient Israel? And oddly enough, God is is very precise in some ways and then not so much in others. And so we know the kind of work in Scripture that is prohibited on the Sabbath. Here here are things that are prohibited explicitly in Scripture that would qualify as work that you're not allowed to do. Kindling a fire, can't do it. Gathering manna, can't do it. Selling goods or bearing burdens. Here are some things that you could do on the Sabbath that wouldn't qualify as work. So they would be permitted. 
military campaigns, marriage feasts, dedication feasts, visiting a man of God, changing temple guards, preparing the showbread and putting it out in the temple, offering sacrifices, the duties of priests and Levites, and opening the east gate. Now quite obviously, because I've just given them all to you where it's specific in Scripture, this isn't an exhaustive list. And so as a consequence of that, uh, rabbis got together and they talked about, well, what qualifies as work and what doesn't qualify as work? What are we allowed to do on the Sabbath and what should we not do on the Sabbath if we want to honor God? And this gave rise to all kinds of odd traditions. Uh, One of my favorite comes in the Mishnah, uh, where if a building falls down on the Sabbath day and you think there are people in the building, you're allowed to clear away the rubble And if someone is alive, you can then excise them from the building. But if you move the rubble away and they are dead, well, then you just leave the corpse there and you come back tomorrow. Another great quandary, things discussed. uh, Is it okay to eat an egg that was laid on the Sabbath? Or is it okay to break the the dead twig off of a rose bush on the Sabbath? These were the kind of things that were being discussed. And yet the point was the same. The people were to rest. And so the heart behind even these human traditions, initially anyhow, was to safeguard this law of God, to kind of build a fence or a hedge around the Sabbath to make sure they didn't break it. They didn't want to violate the holiness of God. They understood the gravity of sin. So they desired to stay away from it. And so we go, all right, we want to keep the Sabbath, and and then how we keep the Sabbath is by resting. And then the question comes, well, why? Why? And we're told there in verse 11 of Exodus chapter 20, because the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and everything in them in six days. Then he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and declared it to be holy. And so the reason that God's people are to rest is because God rested. God created everything in six days, and then he rested on the seventh day. The seventh day is actually, that's what the word Sabbath means. It's like last day of the week, seventh day. And that was the day that God rested. So his people are to imitate him by resting from their work on the Sabbath. This makes you think, well, why did God rest? Did he get tired? Just really worn out after speaking everything into existence? Well, no, of course not. I think one reason that God rested on the seventh day was to set a pattern for his people down the line. But I think another reason is that he was just enjoying his work. You remember he creates and it's good and good and and very good. God is satisfied. And rest is a kind of satisfaction and celebration of completed work. God's work of creation was good. And he's basically saying, in effect, let my highest creature, 
the crown of my creation, the one in my image, stop once every seven days and commemorate with me the fact that I am the creator who has done all of this. Let him stop working and focus on me, the God he was made for. Let him remember I am the source of all that he has. I am the fountain of blessing. So God's people are to rest as they imitate God. We get another piece of the Sabbath, of what what it means to rest on the Sabbath and and why the people do it when Moses recounts the law in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 12 through 15. Deuteronomy is kind of like the director's cut of the law, right? You get some of these extra things in there when Moses is preaching to the people. And this is what he says. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. Now here's the new part. Verse 15. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. And so you can see, not only are the people imitating God as they rest on the Sabbath Sabbath day, they're also, also to keep the Sabbath day to remember what God has done for them to remember their redemption, their salvation out of slavery. The Sabbath stood as a covenant sign which calls the Israelites to weekly remember where they came from and how God saved them. In the same way that when a rainbow appears in the sky, one of the things that we are to think as the people of God is that God will not destroy the world again with water. The sign of Noah goes together. These covenants have sign. Abraham has circumcision. And the Sabbath is a sign of the covenant between God and Israel. It reminds the people that they are in relationship with God. That they exist as God's people distinct from the world. What a gift the Sabbath was. I mean, this is a people who used to get no days off. And now, they're going to take one day off a week to remember that they are slaves no more. But now they are sons. Only by the grace of God. Not only does the Sabbath teach the people to rest, teach them to remember their redemption, it also teaches God's people to gather together. And that's where we come in our text today, Leviticus 23, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and tell them, These are my appointed times. 
the times of the Lord that you will proclaim as sacred assemblies. Work may be done for six days, but on the seventh day, there is to be a Sabbath of complete rest, a sacred assembly. You might have holy convocation there, same thing. You are not to do any work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord, wherever you live. And so we recognize that the people on the Sabbath are to gather together in order to worship God. And so we have, we have three kind of big building blocks of what it looks like to keep the Sabbath. Right? Resting from work, remembering their redemption, and gathering together in order to give glory and honor and praise to the Lord their God. And what a wonderful gift. The people stop and stop doing what their work normally is, their ordinary work, and they gather together to worship. The people must rest so that they might be free to worship God. And they worship God by trusting Him enough to rest from their labors. Their rest demonstrates dependence on God. The Lord commands the Israelites to proclaim their loyalty to Him in a way that brings them blessing. The Sabbath brings needed rest and refreshment. The command for the people of Israel to rest and to keep the Sabbath day holy is a blessing. It's a wonderful gift. That sounds a little bit awkward at first to think of a command as a gift. But that's exactly how all the commands of God work. When we keep the commands of God, it is for our good. They are gifts to us. God seeks to bless His people as they obey His will. And specifically with the Sabbath, the blessing is obvious. Rest for the body and for the soul. Worship of Him. An opportunity to enjoy and enter into relationship with Him as they celebrate His presence among them. God builds the rhythm of the Sabbath into everyday life for the good of His people. And yet this good gift of Sabbath ends up getting a little obscured. Remember earlier we talked about some of those traditions that were built up by rabbis around the Sabbath, that, that fence or that hedge around breaking the law of God. And what happened is, as these rules multiplied, the joy of the Sabbath strangled out of it. To the extent that people didn't really enjoy it. Or they were, in the case of the Pharisees, looking for ways to find people breaking it. Look with me at Mark 2. Mark 2. Verses 23 through 28. One Sabbath, he, that's Jesus, was going through the grain fields. 
And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Have you never read what David did? Jesus said. When he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And so what's going on initially is uh, the Pharisees see Jesus and his disciples. It's a Sabbath day. They're probably traveling and they're just plucking heads of grain out there, which is a normal, lawful thing to do. And they're eating it because they're hungry. And the Pharisees have this human tradition that's been built around the Sabbath. And they say, your disciples are breaking the Sabbath. You claim to love God and they're breaking the Sabbath? Come on, this is incongruous. You're wrong. And Jesus responds, he says, you guys know that story in 1 Samuel 21 where, where David is fleeing for his life from Saul and he comes to the priest at Nob. And the priest doesn't have much food there, David's hungry, but he has this holy sacred bread that only priests can eat. And the priest makes an exception for David and allows him to eat the bread. Now, if you're like me, initially going, okay, what does this have to do with what Jesus is doing, right? But what Jesus is doing is he's making an argument from the lesser to the greater. And so this is what he's saying. If a human priest can make an exception for David to violate a divine prescription, then the Son of Man, Jesus, can be allowed to violate a human prescription, right? So he's saying, saying, here is an event where a priest allowed David to break God's law, and now we are at a place where I'm just breaking your law. Jesus never broke the Sabbath. That's important to to keep in view. And he's saying, it's okay for us to pluck grain. And then he, he continues, He says, after all, you don't, really, you don't really understand the Sabbath. He says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man, this is a divine title Jesus takes on to himself, is Lord even of the Sabbath. This is an astonishing claim in Mark's Gospel, but what Jesus is saying is, I am God of the Sabbath. I was there when it was made. I created it. I have authority over the Sabbath. And indeed, Jesus is the fulfillment of the Sabbath. Colossians 2, Paul writes in verse 16, Therefore, do not let anyone judge you in regard to food or drink, or in the matter of a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of what was to come. The substance is Christ. See, when Jesus says, I am Lord of the Sabbath, he means he is the Sabbath. Jesus is the source of the deep rest that we need. 
Jesus is the God in whom we trust. Jesus is the one who stretched the stars out in the sky. Jesus is the one who meets our needs. Jesus is the one who lived the life we should have lived. Jesus is the one who died a substitutionary death in the place of all who put their faith in him on the cross. Jesus is the one who raised from the dead so that we might be free from death. Jesus is the one who is ruling and reigning in heaven right now. Jesus is the one who will return to earth to make everything sad untrue, to wipe every tear from the eye, and to bring his kingdom in its fullness. Jesus is the one that we put all our hopes, all our trust, all our dreams in. Because Jesus is the one upon whom we can rest. He is the one who can really bring lasting satisfaction to our souls. We dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. As Christians, it is on Christ, the solid rock, we stand. We rest. All other ground is sinking sand. So often we we try to build our lives on other foundations aside from Christ and all of them will crumble. All of them will leave us restless. How often do we strive to find our identity in in job or family or in, in how we look or in some other thing that doesn't really matter, some other idol. We strive and strive and strive and there there is no rest. The only true and lasting rest, the only place where your soul will be happy is in Christ alone. It is in Him we must rest. So Christian, strive to keep resting in Jesus. Remembering that that the Sabbath was a sign pointing us to Christ. Where's Paul's language in in Colossians? The, The Sabbath was a shadow pointing us to the substance of Christ. Embrace the reality of true and deep and lasting rest by continuing to trust in Jesus. Non-Christian, Jesus Christ offers you rest. There's so many different things in this world that call out for your attention and your loyalty and your time and none of them can keep their promises. You think, if I just get this next thing, if this circumstance just changes, then I'll be satisfied. Then I'll be happy. But friend, the last circumstance lied to you. And the the thing that's just over the horizon, it's lying to you also. Only Christ can give you rest. Don't waste your time with crummy gods that can't deliver on their promises. 
Repent of your sin and come to Christ. His word is true. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. All of you take my yoke and learn from me because I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for yourselves. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You are looking for for hope and for security and for, for meaning. Look no longer. Christ stands before you with arms wide open. He's not mad at you. He's inviting you. Lay down your sins. Lay down your idols. Come to me and rest. You were made to have relationship with God. And it's only in Christ that you can have that satisfaction. The Sabbath teaches God's people to rest. It teaches God's people to remember their redemption. It teaches God's people to gather together for worship. And it's completely fulfilled in Christ. And so we have to ask the question, well, what does that mean for us? Do we need to keep the fourth commandment? And if so, how so? Now there's, there's disagreement among Christians on this. But typically, there are are three main schools. The first one is, uh, we typically call them Sabbatarians. And what they say is, uh, the Sabbath day is just the same as it used to be, but it's on Sunday now. And so we need to keep all the the laws, including the ceremonial ones, that the Jews used to keep. So it's just a one-to-one. We still need to make sure that we're doing no work whatsoever. Right? So uh, they're usually pretty inconsistent on this. Uh, because your most orthodox of Jews like, won't even turn the lights on in the morning for fear of breaking the Sabbath, and so they use candles or a light timer. But most Sabbatarians don't do that. Uh, I had one friend crudely summarize their position as no fun Sundays. Right? Sabbatarians, it's a legitimate position. I, I have Sabbatarian friends. I love them, and that's, that's one position. That's one way to understand this. Uh, the second position, I think, is probably the most popular in evangelicalism, but I actually like it less than the first one. And that is, the, I, I don't know how to actually call it. We'll just call it the no worries position, which means it's fulfilled in Jesus, and so I don't have to worry about any day ever. Don't worry about the fourth commandment. We're just going to file that under um, straight-up ceremonial law, and there's nothing binding in it still. And, and I get how you can arrive at that conclusion, right? We just read Colossians. Don't let anyone judge you in regard to food or drink or in matter of festival, new, mo- new moon, or Sabbath day, right? These were a shadow of the substance of the thing to come. And so, so I understand this position, but I think that it ignores some of the evidence that exists within our New Testament. Some of the, the just obvious patterns and obvious commands that we have there before us. Which brings me to the third position, which is my position and the one I'm teaching to this morning, which is the Lord's Day. The, the, the Sabbath is not the, quite the Sabbath anymore, but, but we keep the, the, Sabbath, the fourth commandment by observing the Lord's Day. And so we keep it, but in a new way that has been transformed by Jesus. Let me try to explain to you what I mean. Um, but first, I'll read to you what uh, those of you who are members of our church have agreed to. 
right? This is the Baptist faith and message, part of our statement of faith. This is how it defines the Lord's Day. Article 7 or 8. It says this, The first day of the week is the Lord's Day. It is a Christian institution for regular observance. It commemorates the resurrection of Christ from the dead and should include exercises of worship and spiritual devotion, both public and private. Activities on the Lord's Day should be commensurate with the Christian's conscience under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And so that's kind of how we have defined the Lord's Day. You go, well, why do we do that? It's because it seems very early on in the church, this became the day that was appropriated for worship. And so you can see in Acts chapter 20, Paul goes to Troas and he's preaching to the church. They're breaking bread, having the Lord's Supper, and it is the first day of the week. Everything in 1 Corinthians 16, Paul tells the church there, hey, when you gather together on the first day of the week, collect money so that when I come, I can just take that money and take it to the poor who are in Jerusalem and suffering. His expectation is that they're meeting on the first day of the week. We think of that great apocalyptic vision of the Apostle John. We read it as the book of Revelation. And he says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. That's actually where we get the language, the Lord's day. It's on the first day of the week, on the Lord's day. The church is meeting on this day and is pretty much always met on this day in order to worship and focus on God. I love how B.B. Warfield says it. He said, Christ took the Sabbath into the grave with him and brought the Lord's day out of the grave with him on the resurrection morning. And so, what does that mean for us? Just nitty-gritty details. And I've telegraphed this already, but I'll make it explicit once more. I think there are principles within the Sabbath that still apply to us. So the ceremonial aspects of it, like don't pick up sticks on the Sabbath, I think that is ultimately fulfilled in Christ. That's unique to Israel. But there are principles underneath that are deeper, that are still relevant. For, for example, God rested on the seventh day. And therefore, it's wise for Christians to rest one day out of seven. And for us, it makes sense to do that on the day we've devoted to worship, which is the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, the day that Jesus rose from the dead. I also think it makes sense for us on that day to remember our redemption, remember our salvation, and ultimately, yes, to, to gather for worship. So rest, what does this mean for us? It just, I think very plainly, it means stop doing what you ordinarily would do on the Lord's day and devote that day to the worship of God. Specifically, and most importantly, in the gathering together with other believers. But also in other areas of your life. I don't think it's accidental that God built a day of rest into the lives of his people. It gets healthy and good and wise. I'm not going to make all the caveats here. Obviously, there are um, seasons of life where you have to work on the Lord's day, and I don't think that's sin. I did it for a long period of time. Uh, there are works of necessity where you know doctors and EMTs where you can't always be off on the Lord's day. We, we get that. I'm not, we're not going to make all the caveats. We're just going to make propositions here where it's, in general, wise 
to rest one day in seven and to rest on the Lord's day when you're together with God's people. We do it to focus on God and to express our dependence on him. In the same way that Israel rested one day in seven and made themselves distinct from their neighbors, so too we are to rest one day in seven and be distinct from our neighbors. But Israel didn't need to keep up with the nations around them because they were depending on God. Right? We don't have to farm one extra day because we know our God will provide. We don't have to collect manna on the Sabbath because we know that God is going to provide for the next day. And I think likewise, believer, we don't have to work, work, work all the time because we understand that God will meet our needs, that he will provide for us. And so we, we stop from our ordinary work in order to worship God. And we worship God by trusting him enough to rest from our labor. So get stuff done on other days of the week. Make the Lord's Day the pinnacle of your week rather than the pit. Make it something you look forward to rather than something you kind of dread because you know you, you want to be up until 5 a.m. on Saturday night and then come in and wonder, man, I really didn't enjoy service today. Well, well go figure. Prepare for it. Prepare to plan to, to take walks in the afternoon. I heard a story, I'm probably going to mess it up, but Martin Luther had an apprentice, his name was Melanchthon, and one day Melanchthon said something to the effect that, uh, Luther, today we are going to discuss uh, the workings of the cosmos, something along those lines, something grand, big intellectual discussion, uh, and Luther replied, no, my friend, today we shall go fishing. And his point was that to point out this need to rest. And I, I think that's a fine act. I don't really like to fish. I don't like to get my hands dirty with all the stuff. It's gross. Um, but if that's your thing, you know, plan to go fishing. Good thing to do on the Lord's Day is to set aside those Christian books that you haven't read. Give some time to them. Set aside some time to read your Bible, to, to pray. Spend time with your family. Nap. In the fall, watch football. Get in your garden or in your garage. Rest and rest with your eye on heaven. Acknowledging that all these good gifts and all these restful activities are gifts from God. Put your attention on the Lord all day on the Lord's day. It's the Lord's day, not the Lord's hour. Secondly, in regards to remembering we want to remember that just as Israel were, was slaved, enslaved in Egypt and God brought them out and adopted them as sons, so too were we slaves to sin. And God has rescued us from our sin. But we deserve an eternity of wrath beneath the curse of God. But we deserve hell. And yet, because of Christ's work on the cross, we have every blessing that is owed to Christ when we put our faith in him. King Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. 
We should never get over that. We, we should never not enjoy sitting back and thinking, me, God, really? I can't believe you saved me. You were faithful to save me from my sin and I know that you will be faithful to bring me through whatever calamity, whatever hardship, whatever prosperity comes my way. My heart is firm and trusting in Christ alone. Remember. A really fun way to, to help us do this, remember not only the gospel, but all the different ways that God has been faithful to us, is, and I've told you this, I think, recently too, uh, is just by keeping a, a little journal where you just write down the way that God answers prayers. Little things. I, you know, I, <laughs> I prayed, it's probably a month or two ago now. We couldn't find a baby monitor that we had just bought. I prayed that we would find it, and like half an hour later, we'd been looking for this thing for a long time, uh, my wife found it. It was like behind a poster on the wall where the kid put it, and you would never find it in a million years. It's like, well, that's a wonderful answered prayer, Lord, that you care about something as silly as a baby monitor. My point here is to say, catalog all the different ways God's faithful to you so that when you get into a season where it's a little bit more difficult to trust God, and pull that off your desk and remember your salvation, but also all the little ways that God has been faithful over and over again. That's why Israel so often recites their history in the Psalms. Right? You're like, sometimes you read through the Psalms, like, how many times are they going to refer to that time they walked through the Red Sea? Because it shows God's been faithful in the past and they can depend on him being faithful in the future. Remember how God has been faithful to him, to you. He has been faithful in the past and he will be faithful in the future. So we gather on the Lord's Day and we rest on the Lord's Day, and we remember God's work on the Lord's Day. And as we gather, this is maybe, maybe the most important thing we do on the Lord's Day, is this right here, gathering together corporately to worship God. I think so often, especially in our, our culture, Christianity is viewed as an individualistic experience. And, and it is, as far as conversion goes, you have to be converted as an individual but, but you, you are not saved into the ether. You are reconciled to Christ and to his people. There's, there's no such thing as solitary Christianity. If, if you do a, a me and Jesus kind of relationship with God that is hermetically sealed off from we and Jesus together in the church, then you are acting in a way that Christ would find abhorrent and unchristian. And you have cause to ask yourself if you've really believed the gospel. No one gets Jesus without his church. This is why when uh, he blinds the Apostle Paul, and he says to, to him, I guess he's Saul, right? He calls him Saul at this point. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You know, Paul's never laid a hand on Jesus. He's persecuting the church. But this is how Jesus, this is how closely Jesus identifies with his church. To do harm to a Christian, to do harm to the church, was to harm Jesus himself. We are, right, 1 Corinthians 12, the body of Christ. We cannot be grafted into Christ 
can say, well, I don't like those other Christians and I'm not going to have any relationship with them whatsoever. No, we are, we are called to gather together and to worship. Assembling like this to worship God is essential to Christianity. That's what the word church actually means, right? In Greek, it's ekklesia, and it just means to assemble or an assembly. Gathering is not optional. It's commanded of us. In Hebrews chapter 10, You want to turn there with me? We're told, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, he has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. Since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering since he who promised is faithful. And let us watch out for one another to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other all the more as you see the day approaching. For if we deliberately go on sinning after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice or sins. So we are told, do not neglect gathering together. And so, friends, we must not forsake gathering together as the church. Instead, we must commit ourselves to fellowship with one another, to the word of God and to prayer, to singing to one another gospel truths, to celebrating the Lord's Supper with one another. We must commit ourselves to the corporate worship of God. It is an essential. And it's, it's something that we must plan for. should plan for it. Rest, ironically enough, is an activity that must be planned for and then pursued. And one of the most restful things we should do on a Sunday is come together and participate in corporate worship. And so some of the things you can do to, some of the things we do in our house anyway, everybody can do different things. It's just plan for. We, we, you know, we try to pick out our clothes the night before. Maybe plan meals if we're going to cook. It's a good crock pot day for us. To just try to clear out some of these things that might take our attention away from the Lord so that we can focus on Him. Chelsea always says we want to be more holy and less hassled on the Lord's day. And I like that. We want to commit ourselves to making sure we enjoy all the rest and refreshment that God has for us. The Lord's Day is not a burden. It's a blessing. We should come to church not going, oh, you know, I've got, got to go. Part of, my, part of this command. We should come going, this is a command I delight to enjoy. You should come asking, how is God going to bless me today? By being in His Word and with His people. Who, who does God have for me to bless today? Lord's Day is a wonderful gift. The point here is to say, on this, this day should center on worship, not on everything else. I think so often in my own life, 
I've organized my Sundays around everything else and then tried to squeeze church in. When the more appropriate way to go about that is to center everything on worship and then try to squeeze everything else in that I might want to do. Is the Lord's Day for you a day of worship and devotion to God or is it a day where you just kind of squeeze church in? Friends, remember, this is a feast, not a funeral. So we ought to come hungry, ready to eat to the fullness of Christ, ready to be refreshed as we rest by worshiping together. Let's pray. God, we thank you. Thank you for calling us into relationship with you and with one another. Help us to never take the privilege of gathering together as your people and worshiping for granted. Help us to enjoy all the blessings that obedience to your commands gives to us. Let Christ be exalted in our lives. Help us to rest in Him alone and to refuse to stray away from that firm foundation and to begin building our lives on other things. But we thank You for Jesus who died so that our sins might be forgiven and rose from the dead so that we might be free from death. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.